Come with us on a journey into the unknown, the unexplained, and the unbelievable. We will test your senses and challenge your beliefs. A world where science and religion clash. Or do they? You will meet real people and hear real stories, but you will not believe. You will witness strange sights and hear strange sounds, but you will not believe. This is the New England Ghost Project. Welcome to the Good evening, everyone, and welcome to another edition of Ghost Chronicles International. I am Ron Kolick, your host, the gatekeeper to the realm of the unknown, the unexplained, and the unbelievable New England's own Van Helsing. With me, all the way from across the pond, is the gold standard in ghost hunting himself, <laughs> the founder of Parascience, Mr. Steve Parsons. Good afternoon, Ron. How are you? Well, it's evening, isn't it? Well, it's evening here, but I'm, you know, I'm just being considerate to our American listeners. Yeah, well, <laughs> don't be. Wait, okay. Was that an EVP or did we hear a voice? No, we heard a voice. <laughs> I think that's... Um, Sorry. Was I supposed to be quiet? <laughs> that's all right. We don't care. Uh, and so since you're here, let me introduce to you. Um, she has been around in the paranormal. She, she well... I can't see. Well, since two years old. So, um, <laughs> this so is just gone badly young. wrong already. Um, I, Ursula, I'm really sorry. This is just going badly wrong. Ron, do you want to start the intro again? <laughs> yeah, she is the, uh, the, the, uh-huh. the author of the Chicago Ghost Tours and uh, author and ghost hunter and, okay. and a fellow Polish so, yeah, person you know, like they, me, they told me that a whole Ursula family. Belinsky. Did I get the name right? Nope. The, the relatives oh, so couldn't close. afford yeah, well, a burial, so right. yeah, they threw no the bodies in that empty hole. I've got to apologize, too, because um, it, it's more I, got the, I got the notification uh, quite late about the guest, and uh, Togginet just gave me the one name, so I assumed it was Ursula Andres. Well, thank you. I'll take it. <laughs> and, and, in fact, and in fact, looking at the picture, I, I can see how that mistake could arise. So. Uh, you're, you're my new best friend. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah, those Brits can really spread it thick. Anyways. Uh, so, Ursula, why don't you give out your website for us, please? Our website is chicagohauntings.com, and that's got all the information about the books and the tours and events and uh, links to all kinds of other great resources on the Internet about all things haunted. Mm. And, and you have been doing this for quite a while, right? You know, I really have been doing this a long time, and I am getting old, so if there is no problem with that or anybody <laughs> being aware of that. Um, I started as a research assistant to a, a psychology student that was doing work in parapsychology when I was in uh, college. So I was 18 years old when I started, and basically I was a history major, and I was doing the background research for the field work that he was doing, which was investigating some haunted locations um, in the Chicago area. We were in school out in the western suburbs. So, yeah, I did start when I was 18. I just turned 45, so it's been a while that I've been doing this. I continued to uh, be an assistant to him for a couple of years as an undergraduate, um, even, you know, we published some articles in some of the uh, parapsychology journals. And so I got a really good start um, in the field, a good background. And I, I did also work with um, the Parapsychological Association. I edited their newsletter for a while and got to be friends with, um, you know, a lot of actual parapsychologists back in the day 
uh, that were my mentors that would actually write me letters. You know, they would write letters back and forth before the internet. Um, and they, you know, help me answer questions that I had about parapsychology and, and guide me to books to read and things like that. So a really good introduction and a really good background. And uh, when I got into grad school, I continued to pursue things on my own and to, uh, I got really interested in the folklore and the, and the um, experiential side of ghost hunting because uh, I found very quickly that um, if you're just going to demand evidence when you go to a haunted place oftentimes you'll be very disappointed um you know visiting one time or two times but the thing that remains all the time is the experiential evidence that the experiences that people have actually had at sometimes hundreds of them you know at these numerous places and so that became my focus was really studying the um uh, the experiences that people have had and the folklore that's connected to these locations and you've done a lot of research in that too, Ursula. I mean, you know, I mean, so many times we hear the stories of, of uh, you know, the haunted hitchhiker, the the disappears in the right. cemetery and all that. And and of course, out in Chicago, you have uh, probably one of the most famous one. And um, you you actually might believe you know who this is. Oh yeah, and this is this is the real pleasure in doing this is you know taking these long-standing legends or folk tales and actually digging deep enough to find what the historical basis of these are. And so yeah, you know our, our story of Resurrection Mary in Chicago, you know probably the world's most famous vanishing hitchhiker or phantom hitchhiker. Um, there are actually a, a there are a handful of young women that she's often connected to that died in the 20s or 30s in, in car accidents, named Mary, always of Polish or Czech descent, um, always on the south side of Chicago that they uh, that they live. Um, but there's there's two that actually have a very strong connection. We think we think there's actually probably two different. Um, Theories or entities or what have you that are interacted with at this point and not just one. And one of them, um, you know, the classic young woman who's um, seen walking along Archer Road. We think this was in life a woman named Mary Bergovi who was in the back of the yards neighborhood near the stockyards in the 1920s. And she was killed um, in March of 1934, actually in the loop downtown when the car she was driving in struck one of the elevated trains, the port steams, and she was sitting in the front passenger seat and went through the window and died. She was buried at Resurrection Cemetery on Archer Road, and a few days after the burial, people started to see her not only in the cemetery where she was buried, but also her own friends were seeing her out on Archer Road as they traveled home from the dance hall where they all used to go. So this is a very very strong set of experiences that happened right after her death. And we really think with the way that she's identified over the years that this is a very strong connection to this historical figure. The other one is a uh, connection to a little girl, actually, a 12-year-old girl named Anna Norgas, who um, adopted the name Maria, interestingly enough. She was a Lithuanian immigrant, and she wanted a middle name. And her mom said she could pick one because uh, uh, they uh, her uh, her. Uh, fellow people from her country didn't typically have middle names that all of her American friends did. So she chose the name Maria that she liked to use. So she died on the eve of her 13th birthday in a car accident. And uh, there have been so many people over the years since we released the photograph of this young girl 
who has come forward and identified her as the phantom that they picked up along Archer Road, some, some as early as 1927, some as recently as last summer. And she's always seen wearing like a white dress with a white veil over her head. And Anna was actually buried in her first communion dress and the veil. And uh, many people have identified her as the, the um, young girl that they've seen along the road. I find that absolutely fascinating because we have uh, very similar cases here in the UK. The Phantom Hitchhiker is probably, or used to certainly be, one of the most reported uh, road ghosts uh, and urban myths, urban legends. And we just don't have that association with uh, existing cases. There are one or two um, that spring to mind, like, for example, Clouds Hill and the Phantom Motorcyclist which is often associated to be um, right. Lawrence of Arabia, um, T. Lawrence. But we, we, we have so many road ghosts, so many phantom hitchhikers throughout the United Kingdom that uh, we just don't have that historical basis for them. Uh, right. So we can't make right, that, exactly. that, that, that link. Yeah, and it's, it's, it's interesting. You're often wondering, and that's all always kind of, credited as why Resurrection Mary is the most famous one, because we make these connections. And uh, people aren't really aware that there are so many instances of this all over the world. And going back, you know, hundreds of years, even before there were cars, people reported um, picking up young women on horseback, you know, driving through the countryside, and she would disappear from the back of the horse before they got to the location. I know when I was researching the first book, the story in the UK that I came across all the time was the Phantom of Bluebell Hill, which you're probably familiar yeah, with. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, she's reported to be no no more information than she was was believed to be a young woman on the way to her wedding than she's seen in her wedding dress. Hmm. But no, uh, but yeah, no historical connections um, they, made. And they I don't are... know if it's that people don't look for the connection or not, or if they just there just isn't one. Um, well, we've certainly. I know that people have certainly looked at the folklore and um, looked at the history of the area to see if there is a connection. But here in the UK, uh, at least, we have. Uh, I mean, I don't really know of any area uh, in the UK that doesn't have a phantom hitchhiker, a road ghost, uh, out here in West Wales, where I am currently. Uh, I know of several, um, and up on Merseyside uh, near Liverpool. Uh, Again, there were several. Indeed, they were they were quite. Uh, one in particular was quite commonly reported. Uh, members of uh, my my own cousin once claimed a sighting of of a particular phantom hitchhiker. Mm-hmm. Um, so they are. Apt- Sorry, Ron. Was alcohol involved? No. Um, so they are absolutely <laughs> endemic throughout throughout the United Kingdom, um, and it's quite a surprise to a learn that they're so common in North America, but B, that you have one that, that is supported by, by historical evidence or possibly supported by historical evidence. I find that fascinating. There are actually claims all around the world of phantom hitchhikers in one way or another, one shape or another. And in fact, if, if you go to, they actually have these, uh, I don't know what they call them, folklore conventions or so where, where these uh, folklorists, where they actually, you know, the, the storytellers actually uh, compare stories and, and the same thing comes up in, from every section of the country and in, in, in the world, really. 
Yeah, I, I remember reading in, uh, I think it was some Asian country. I'm not, it might be Indonesia, I'm not sure. No, I think it was the Philippines, and they even have them there. So, I mean, it's, it's uh, a common. I remember after that big um, tsunami in Thailand a few years back, there were many, many reports in the news even of um, cab drivers picking up people along the beach. Oh, in yeah. Thailand and having yeah. the people yeah, we have them. in their cabs on the way to the destination. This is happening over and over again. So anyways, have- uh, before we, I, you know, I, we've only got you for half an hour, and, and I did want to get you to talk about perhaps the most interesting subject, uh, to me anyways, and that is the Ghostbuster building. And uh, if anybody knows the original Ghostbuster we we look they remember they look at the architectural plans and they see oh my god you know they they never built them like this well you actually have a building similar to that in in chicago is that correct that's right this is such a fascinating story and uh, it's one of my favorite stories about chicago um it doesn't really have to do with a ghost at all but this paranormal phenomenon in chicago Mm -hmm. that is all centered around one of our most recognizable skyscrapers, which is the John Hancock building. And, it's, you know, it's so just iconic because it's that trapezoid shape. It's, it's a black building and it's got the, um, it's like a triangle with the top lopped off, very narrow, tall triangle. And um, it's got the, uh, tri- the uh, triangles down the side of the structure for support, the steel triangles. This building has had the most bizarre history since it was first erected in the late 1960s. And as a matter of fact, there's so much folklore that surrounds the the structure of the John Hancock building. It's very interesting. There were, um, what a lot of people don't know about Chicago at that time in the late 1960s was that there was this sort of um, migration of occultists and um, what we call New Agers today to Chicago during that decade because there was a belief that Chicago was going to be at the center of the coming new age. And we were going to emerge as a sort of, you know, Mecca for people that were spiritually minded. Mm -hmm. Something very funny, you know, to our sensibility about 20th century Chicago and being this working class, you know, railroads Mm -hmm. and butchers like Carl Sandberg painted us. But uh, that was, that was the feeling then. And so there were a lot of people that were spiritually minded and had, you know, been schooled in, in, you know, magical arts and in the occult at that time when the design for the Hancock building was um, unveiled. And a lot of people had a problem with this, believing that the trapezoidal structure of the building was going to pause this, pose this sort of supernatural or at least spiritual problem for Chicago. They referred to a lot of occult literature, some some of it going back thousands of years, that talks about the trapezoidal shape as uh, a portal. Um, and they believe that this building, this huge door, you know, door, dortal, doorway between dimensions in Chicago was going to literally open the door for all sorts of supernatural forces to come into the city. Um, some of them, or most of them, uh, potentially negative. So there was actually a petition to the city council to stop the construction of the building. Of course, it was blown off. It's a tobacco thing. Um, The building went up, and sure enough, it wasn't long after it was completed that there was the first of a series of bizarre incidents that occurred there, which was that um, a girl named Brain Kowalski, who was the girlfriend of a real estate broker, 
um, who was living in the building at the time. The Hancock is the, the top half is apartments and the bottom half is office, uh, office space. They were living in one of the top floors of the Hancock and they had come home from a local nightclub area one evening and he was uh, in the bathroom washing up for bed and she was in the bedroom and he came out and found that she was gone uh, and her body was found um, on Michigan Avenue from 90 floors below. She Whoa. had crashed through the apartment window. Well, the structural engineer was called in, uh, Fazra Khan, and he uh, testified that there was no physical way that this could have happened. Uh, the windows in the Hancock, the Hancock building, um, for those who have not visited Chicago, is situated almost directly on the shore of Lake Michigan. And so it's built to withstand these enormous winds off of, you know, one of the Great Lakes. And so the build, the windows in the building were built to withstand 258 pounds of force per square foot. Um, detectives deemed that it was impossible, even if she'd been pushed, it was impossible for that window to have broke, been broken through. Um, she was like 120 pounds and, you know, soaking wet, too. So that didn't, you know, make it any more easy to figure out. Um, this was one of, um, 11 unexplained suicides or, um, deaths that have occurred in the building over these past, you know, 40 years. And, um, there's just these freak things that occur. There was another incident where a young man, a college student was, um, he and his dad were in the kitchen of their apartment and, uh, he was studying for an exam and they were chatting away and the dad was making toast. He was back turned to the sun and uh, heard this enormous crash and turned around and his son had gone through the window. Now, um, it's led a lot of people to wonder if there was, if there's some kind of diabolical, you know, force contained in this building. This is something sure. that motivates people to do these things. And um, a lot of times people will point to like, this old legend or incident that happened in the neighborhood. The neighborhood is called Streeterville and it's of course, you know, the Gold Coast, it's the most desirable neighborhood in Chicago. Um, back in the late part of the 19th century, um, this is a place where a lot of the wealthiest people in Chicago were moving. They had actually built their mansions down in the, in the near uh, South Loop. But they were moving because of there was the Levy District, well, the Vice District that had grown up there. So they wanted to get away from that. So they were building mansions in this desirable lakefront property, which is at now Streeterville. And there was this ragtag ex-sea captain named Cap Streeter that tried to take a claim to this land. And he, um, you know, he claimed to, that literally the day that he died that he owned this land that everybody was trying to build on. And on his deathbed, he cursed the land. And he said that nobody would be at peace living or working on it ever again. And that spot where the Hancock is is pretty much exactly where he staked his claim. So that's always a connection that's made. Huh. Another connection is the fact that um, there's a there's a very interesting connection between the building and Anton LaVey, who founded the Church of Satan. Uh, a lot of people know that Anton LaVey was from Chicago. What a lot of people don't know is that uh, when he was born in 1930, Michigan Avenue, now the Magnificent Mile, one of the most illustrious shopping districts in the world where the Hancock stands, was a residential district, and he was born to a wealthy family whose home sat right on the property where the Hancock was built. So uh, he even went on later in life, he wrote many essays about a lot of different subjects. He's actually a pretty brilliant guy. 
But he was influenced a lot by H.P. Lovecraft, who wrote a lot about strange angles affecting people that live or work in certain places. And he believed that it was actually the structure of the John Hancock building that had this influence on the people that lived and worked in it. He believed that because of the slant, the slope of the outside walls of the building, um, leading to the fact that none of the units have um, a 90-degree angle outer wall, he believed that people would be were, are affected by this and that they, they're not quite right in the head, literally, um, yeah. because of, of living or working in this environment. And he, he really felt that um, people were, were severely um, and poorly influenced by um, spending time in this building. And if you talk to people that live in the building and people that have worked in the building, they will tell you invariably that there is something wrong with it. And they will point to almost everyone who's talked to has seen ghosts, has, has seen objects move, has seen, seen things flying around, heard voices, you know, everything under the sun. Um, very strange things, like they'll have, you know, they'll see their doppelganger, you know, things like that that are not usually connected with haunted locations. It's kind of like outside the box of even, you know, what we think about as ghost investigators. Um, there is a colony, very famously, a colony of spiders that lives on the outside of the building that makes its way up one side of the building and down the other every year at like clockwork in, in, in the course of 365 days. And uh, huh. something that no one has been really able to explain. Um, so a lot of very strange things have occurred in the Hancock building. The, the connection to Ghostbusters comes in um, when John Belushi moves into the building in the 1970s. And he has visitors one weekend um, in the form of Dan Aykroyd and Harold Ramis, who are working on a script for a film about this kind of backwards team of ghost hunters living in a firehouse in New York City. And they know, you know, all about the comedy routines they want to do in the movie, but they don't have a script. They don't know. They don't have a storyline to hang the characters on. So they're hanging out in John Belushi's apartment in the Hancock building this one weekend, and Belushi starts to tell them about bizarre things that go on in the building. And so what ends up happening is that this idea of a skyscraper in a you know metropolitan location um, that serves as a doorway for interdimensional forces gets written into the script of Ghostbusters. So that skyscraper in New York City that you see in the Ghostbusters film is actually inspired by the John Hancock building and the true story of um, this idea of a, a portal, um, a building being a portal for these supernatural forces. Do you know, it's actually not the only building of um, that's currently um, attracting a reputation. I don't know um, if Ursula and indeed Ron are... Gainey, uh, I've seen the, the, the reports recently uh, on YouTube uh, of the audio footage that's coming from uh, One World Trade Center, the former, formerly known as Freedom Tower. Um, of these, <laughs> they, they sound like the, the sound of screaming jet planes um, mm-hmm. rushing no, into the building. I haven't heard about that. 
and indeed the site is gaining a reputation now i i mean i i've just recently come back from new york and i've also in the past visited uh chicago so the john hancock center i am aware of it and when i was in new york i was actually quite quite struck at the similarities between the two buildings um yeah, obviously apart from the color and the the size but freedom tower mm-hmm. uh, one world trade center is is actually quite similar in design to the hancock center uh, um now yeah. i think obviously you know these these sounds which are associated with high with high winds and 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 extreme weather conditions are more are more associated with uh you know the the the, uh, the wind blowing around the building, and and certainly you know uh, you've, you're more than familiar with strong winds up in Chicago. Um, but it's interesting that you know, and that these buildings, modern buildings, are gaining this reputation quite so quickly. In London, we have a very similar shaped building, uh, the tallest structure in the United Kingdom currently, uh, the the Shard, which again is a, an unfinished trapezoidal design. Um, where they haven't completed it to a point. So it would be interesting to see if any stories start to emerge uh, from the Shard. I I know that we're running up on break, so we're going to have to say goodbye to Ursula, but uh, I I did want to ask you one quick question. Now, now you said these suicides, that they would actually go through the glass, which was actually constructed so that wouldn't happen. Uh, Is it all the same glass? Was it all put in at the same time, or, or were there... It was. It's, there's an interesting counterpoint uh, to the whole supernatural theory. Um, I got to talk to an engineer a couple of weeks ago that actually came on one of our tours, and he said he's one of many people I've talked to that said there's, he said there's something just really wrong with the building structurally. And there's, he said it's, just, it's like a white elephant, but it's a very dangerous white elephant. He says the belief among um, architects and engineers that's unspoken because they just you don't you know you don't want to go out and say the most famous buildings in the world um, mm-hmm. should be taken down you know. Right. Um, he said that because of the structure of the building, those girders on the outside that were put up for the support of the building, and that in the combination of the high winds, he said they believe that there is this. Back these vacuums that are created um, because of the lack of give in the structure, because of the, all of the supports on the outside. Um, you know, anyone familiar with skyscrapers knows that you have to build this, uh, I'm not sure what the term is, a sway, you know, into the building because of the right. wind so that the building literally doesn't break, you know. So um, he said because of these uh, structures on the outside of the building that are supported, the combination of that and the high winds they believe creates these vacuums that literally, at times, in a freak accident, will literally suck people out of the building, you know, even through the glass. That's that's unusual. Unfortunately, we're just about on a break time, so we have to say goodbye to you. But we want to thank you so much, Ursula. And um, once again, could you give out your website and how people can get in touch with you? Absolutely, um, and thanks for having me. Uh, the website is chicagohauntings.com, and all the information on there. People are on Facebook. I've got a Facebook page, Ursula Bielski. Our ghost tours have a Facebook page. Um, so, yeah, visit us. There's so much more information on the, even on the website, and you can find uh, information about the books, too, which uh, um, are growing numerous also. So I hope everyone uh, pays us a visit. Well, thank you, Ursula, and you have a uh, thank you. Yeah. Christmas. 
Oh, thank you so much for having me. Have a wonderful Christmas, too. Happy holidays. See you, too. Bye now. Welcome to Tokinet, radio with a cutting edge. Feel the need to do some soul searching or make some changes in your life to create a more positive future? Then Circles of Wisdom is just the place for you. Circles of Wisdom is a metaphysical bookstore and more, located on Route 28 in downtown Andover, Massachusetts. We carry a large selection of books and music, crystals and gemstones, jewelry and gifts, sage, aromatherapy, and so much more, all in a relaxing and welcoming atmosphere. We offer classes on a variety of topics like yoga, Reiki, psychic development, alternative healing, and personal transformation. For guidance on this journey we call life, get a reading from one of our many readers at Circles of Wisdom, 90 Main Street in downtown Andover, right next to Bertucci's. Call us at 978-474-8010 or check us out on the web at www.circlesofwisdom.com. Lots to see and do in a feel-good place, an oasis in this hectic world. They're creepy and they're kooky, mysterious and spooky. They all talk ugly gooky, the Parrax family. The shows are paranormal, not stuffy but informal. The topics are abnormal, the Parrax family. They're strange, deranged, unrestrained. So grab your favorite brew, it's time to rendezvous. As we give the awards to the Parrax family. Alright. Hi, I'm Ron Kolick, author and lead investigator of the New England Ghost Project, New England's own Van Helsink. And I'm Ann Kerrigan, the blonde bombshell, and I'm the lead investigator of East Bridgewater's Most Haunted. And we'd like to invite you to tune in Ghost Chronicles, the next generation. Every Wednesday night at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on www.toginet.com. So, so yeah, what are they going to hear on this stupid show? What are they going to hear? They are going to hear things that they can't believe are happening. Like uh, Beyond Bizarre. And cemetery tripping. Oh, that's your deal, right? Absolutely. Yeah, one of these days you're going to get uh, so scared of one of these cemetery tripping things that uh, you'll, I'll have to get a new co-host. <laughs> I am brave beyond belief. Nothing yeah, we'll see. scares me. Except so anyways, if you're bored and you got nothing to do on Wednesday night, tune in to Ghost Chronicles Next Generation with Anne and Ron. See you then. And the sound of Ron's racing heart means we're back for part two of Ghost Chronicles International. You're listening to it live on Togginet, uh, Para-X, or you may indeed be listening to it on the podcast. Before the break, our guest was Ursula Bialski, and we were having quite an interesting discussion about the Hancock Centre, which I, I always remember was the Sears Tower. In Chicago, but uh, that's just showing your age. That's all. Yeah, I'm just showing my age. But what's interesting, and it's a shame that Ursula didn't have more time, is that 
You know, there's a there's a range of phenomena uh, that are similar to paranormal reports that are associated with buildings. Um, yeah, just look off, at the uh, well, just often lumped under sick building syndrome and and yeah. attributed sometimes to infrasound, which right. is a, but, a, an in, but, an interest of mine, as you well know. Yeah, but I mean, you look at the pyramids. The pyramids, the, those those are, uh, of course, was was a big deal. The pyramid power back in the seventies and. You could shop in your razor blades yeah, and, say, yeah, and yeah. all that stuff. So the angles, the sacred geometry and so forth is is an uh, interesting uh, subject. And uh, there's a, there might be a lot but, to it. More don't you we, have pyramids on your banknotes? Of course we do. And in God wet rust. In God we trust, you're right. Oh, it's in God. I, I, we always read it as in God wet rust. Yeah, well, it's because the British can't read anyways. Well, the Americans can't. Yeah, whatever. Yeah, whatever. How are you, Ron? Well, I'm getting all excited for a Downton Abbey, but I, I want to go more into this. <laughs> uh, you know, we're getting the new seasons coming up very shortly. They just had uh, little previews of it, so I'm, we're really excited about it. So, anyways, um, I'd like to talk a little bit more about, uh, you know, it, maybe there is. So we talk about ley lines in the paranormal and, and now the, the shape of buildings and so forth. And I mean, is there is there something to this uh, is sacred geometry or ley lines or whatever you want to call it? Any other energy forces that we're unaware of or can't measure? Uh, well, the, you know, what the honest answer is, don't you? The honest answer is we just don't know. Um, I know for certain, one of the great myths of, uh, we talked a little bit about urban legends and, of course, the idea of, uh, you know, the, the urban legend of the phantom hitchhiker. But, of course, ley lines themselves are actually an urban legend um, or, or a form of myth, modern mythology. Well, the, I mean, the, why do they, you say they, that? Well, because they didn't exist until the 1920s. Um, or they didn't they, exist or we weren't aware well, of them. It's a difference. <laughs> They didn't exist in 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 terms of. Uh, I certainly the Chinese had dragon lines, but our, our understanding of ley lines really is a, is a new age thing. It comes from the nineteen sixties. In the nineteen twenties, um, a British. Uh, I'm just trying to find the relevant book so I don't make any mistakes over his name. Um, produced a series, uh, an idea that ancient sites were linked by or were positioned in prominent locations so that, of course, because there were no roads, people could navigate from from one spot to another. Uh, You know, they would would go to one high point on a hill and then they would aim for the next high point. And these were, you know, obviously the the shortest point between two two places is a straight line. Um, Now, that was largely forgotten. Uh, until the 1960s when the New Age community came up with this sort of idea of energy lines, which they'd, they'd borrowed from the, from the Far Eastern culture, the Chinese idea of dragon lines. Um, and then, you know, it, it kind of took off from there. Um, you know, I've seen, I've seen ley lines described on maps where they, they obviously join churches and modern hospitals, even telephone booths, because, you know, they claim that they're relevant. You know, they, they were built on ley lines because they're, you know, modern communication devices and that they were, they were sighted 
I don't know, by accident or, or, or by by design onto these right. no, ley lines. I, I just read that, that the line, uh, ley lines, was coined in 1921 by uh, amateur archaeologist Alfred Watkins. That's the fella. In his book, uh, Early British Trackways. That's the, I've actually got a copy of it, but blow me, I can't find it to uh, to quote from it. I'm I'm scanning the bookshelf as we speak, trying to trying to locate the damn thing. Um, but no, it's absolutely right. It was a 1920s thing. But the idea of of dragon lines, or indeed funeral uh, processional routes, go back way, way, way further. Um, it's only the modern in modern parlance, and this modern new age interpretation of ley lines as being something. Um, that, that, for example, UFOs navigate along, or indeed ghosts use, uh, or, or ghost cases are clustered along. Now, many years ago, uh, going back into the late 90s, uh, Parascience did um, uh, some, some explorations of the island of Anglesey off the North Wales coast, which mm-hmm. has got a large, uh, a, a high amount of its historical landscape uh, from the Bronze Age and the uh, the early sort of pre-Christian era surviving. And we, we drew up, you know, lines linking all of these things. These were only a, a sort of suggestion of ley lines. And we, we tried to plot um, all forms of paranormal activity, black dog cases, ghosts, sightings of, of aerial phenomena, to see if there was any form of correlation with the ley lines. Um, we didn't find any. Uh, but it is, you know, it is an interesting phenomena uh, that people do still support the idea of. And in fact, you know, only only this week I was reading uh, an investigation report where a medium had detected the crossing of ley lines underneath a particular house, and that was the reason why it was uh, a portal to to the afterlife and was used as a spirit gateway. Uh, and it, there are many groups that, that you know, or there are many uh, who have doused for ley lines and found you know, ley line crossings and can douse for them with pendulums. I, I know was a little bit uh, confused about she she never really understood. Basically, they're energy lines that connect various uh, key um, monuments throughout the world to, to each other. Is that correct or am I getting that wrong? Uh, well, here in the UK, they, they, they tend to... Um, connect both ancient sites and also prominent places. So they would run from hill forts and hilltops to even, in some cases, isolated trees in the landscape or water features. Um, mm-hmm. Now, this idea of extending them beyond the, the realms of the United Kingdom is is again a New Age uh, thing. It well, doesn't you know, exist in you know, Alfred Watkins' book. The and it, the book was called The Straight Track. Um, right, right. You, you know your favorite building, the old mans in Concord. Of course, uh, Thoreau used to sit on a rock that's supposed to intercede in a yeah, line. Yeah, I, 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 I remember the guy. I remember. I remember learning learning about that when we were over there. And in fact, also interestingly, whilst we were there, um, discovering that uh, quite a number of visitors uh, had also picked up on on energy lines around the old manse. Um, but Spooky Palooza also said that Series 4 of Downton Abbey is not as good as the others in, in their well, opinion. Well, it's their own. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, it's, it is interesting. We talk about, um, if we move slightly away from, from ley lines back to architecture. Um, right. 
and this idea of of certain buildings uh, the nature of the the architecture being key to reports of phenomena associated with it mm-hmm. well, you know if you look at sick bill sick building sin- syndrome if you google it you will find right. that yeah. uh, there that accounts of people or buildings that that have this syndrome associated with them it, it is remarkably similar in some aspects to paranormal reports um, and where some research has been done, um, and there is only limited research into sick building syndrome, lighting is one of the uh, areas, uh, particularly fluorescent lighting, uh, but also interestingly from my perspective, infrasound, the way that these tall buildings um, or the, the shape of the building interacts with the weather, the, the, the area weather um, so the wind beating against one side of it does create vortices, as Ursula said, uh, and will create areas of high and low pressure. And, of course, that interaction of weather upon the structure is also creating vibrations and sound vibrations. Uh, and infrasound, of course, we do know uh, creates effects in people that are remarkably similar to paranormal experiences. So I think we've got... As with a lot of things, I think you do end up with a mixture of the normal, the mundane, um, and then the, it affects people's people's beliefs and, uh, and interpretations. Of course, once a building gains a reputation, once the Hancock Center started to gain a reputation for weird things taking place there, then everything that wasn't immediately explainable or, or immediately obvious to to uh, to the percipients is going to be interpreted with that bias. I, I suppose. I mean, but I, I think, you know, I mean, we, we talk about, you know, parallel activity. We talked about the, you know, the water tape theory, the stone tape theory. I mean, is it possible that, you know, a structure itself, the, the way it's actually constructed uh, can capture paranormal activity, can record paranormal activity? Well, you know, you keep you keep asking me the question, and the only a- the, the uh, question. Well, the, the, the only, idea of the show is, is discussion. And yeah, the, but the, uh, you see, I, I always I always feel like I'm letting you down because the answers are always the same. Uh, the answer is always we don't know. Uh, it's unlikely because, as I've said before, I don't believe that the there is any sound mechanism for a stone tape theory. This idea that, and, and it's often quoted, well, the building's got iron in it or the building's got silica in it. Mm-hmm. Well, that might be the case. And indeed, you, you can use iron particles stuck to So effectively... skip the stone tape theory if you don't believe that. The water tape theory, which I know you have believed there is some. <laughs> uh, I've, certainly, I've certainly suggested the idea of a water tape because, and it was suggested... Um, purely because it was an exploration of mechanisms. Was there a potential mechanism by which uh, a, a recording could be laid down and then transferred back to the human mind? Uh, I, I, that, was the only, that was the only possible mechanism. And we, you know, when, when it was first suggested, and indeed subsequently in, in the various articles where it's been rehashed, we've made every, you know, we've stressed at every opportunity that it, this is nothing more than a wild idea uh, and an exploration of possibilities it's not a it's not a theory and it's it's virtually untestable but the problem with the stone tape is that 
the physics doesn't support it. Yeah, we, we know that rust particles are used in, in videotapes. Um, and it, but in order to record onto a videotape or an audio tape, you use you know, quite a complicated series of machines and electronics in order to affect those magnetic those those rust particles and then an equally complex set of devices and machines to get that recording back off again um and that's the problem with the stone tape you have just a pile of rust particles um, you don't have those elaborate mechanisms and and so the water tape was uh i don't know you know more like the ramblings of a of, of a of a deluded mind perhaps as some people have called it but it was simply <laughs> but it was simply an exploration of possibilities mm-hmm. okay so you say but well, i mean there, maybe somebody will test it one day i mean there's, cert- there's certainly credible evidence that people are if we I, don't I, know what the paranormal is if we don't know i mean maybe there are energy sources or something that we're unaware of can't measure can't see uh you know it's it's like um so many things that we can't see we didn't believe in them until we found the, the methodology or, or the equipment to be able to understand it uh you know the atom itself i mean in itself and so it's it's not far out of the reach for discussion to talk about some of this these things i mean for instance mirrors in itself i mean mirrors have got there's always been paranormal activity associated with mirrors Maybe there is something with light and fraction or something that opens a portal to another dimension, another realm, another whatever uh, that we are unaware of. Maybe that is actually a piece of equipment that we're not even aware that is a piece of equipment. Well, I mean, ghost hunters certainly use mirrors and mediums do. And I think most famously, uh, Lewis Carroll, Alice Through the Looking Glass, you know, this whole world beyond the mirror, through the mirror. Um, but, you know, I mean, I, I was looking at, funny enough, I was looking at a ghost photograph the other day that was taken um, in a mirror. Um, oh. And, and one, of, one, of the, one of the first things that sprung to mind upon, you know, looking at the picture closely is the mirror needed a damn good clean. Um, you know, you're dealing with fingerprint smudges and imperfections in the glass backing um, rather than the paranormal. You well, know, you know, to say to say that everything is a possibility is kind of true, but at the same time, it's kind of misleading. It, it's it's sort of offering false hope to the, to to people that you know anything and everything is a possibility. Um, you well, know, it is. Forces that we, forces that, well, forces and energy fields that we can't measure. Well, you know, well, of course, I've got to say that's a possibility because physics is continually discovering new things we only found the higgs boson in 2012 um sorry 2013 so you know physics is continuing to make new discoveries but the higgs boson was predicted the higgs boson has been predicted for i think about 30 years Mm -hmm. so what they're discovering isn't absolutely brand new it was anticipated and it was you know, considered to be a possibility. Now, when Einstein it, came up with theory of relativity, he was scoffed at, and and it was it was believed as junk science. Yet it, it was proven. Yeah, uh, and there, there is there is you know there, there exists a possibility that at some point down the line, some of these wackier ideas of 
of the, from the, you know, that stem from the paranormal world, that we consider wacky ideas may indeed, like ley lines, may indeed um, be demonstrated to be factual. But that doesn't mean to, I mean, we don't ignore these sort of things, but at the same time, we have to, you know, work from the known towards the unknown. There are certain things that we do know, and we extend our knowledge gradually. Uh, I think one of the, what's wrong with the general level of paranormal theories is they start at the opposite end and work towards the known. Um, and I think that's where they, they, they run into difficulty. Some cases, but sometimes you uh, you have to, if you're dealing with the unknown, you, you say, okay, we have an unknown. Uh, we don't know it exists. We don't believe it exists. Yet we find this influence. So by in collect, collecting uh, evidence or influence from this unknown that we don't believe that is there, we soon find out maybe there is something there. Uh, in other words, we, we know that the, you know, the planets and, and comets, we, we can tell they're there, even though we can't see them because we understand the gravitational pull on yeah. them. So, yeah. but, I mean, but they were working from the known and extrapolating out into the unknown. What what parasite or what paranormal investigators tend to do is work from the unknown and try and bridge back towards the known in a form of uh, pseudoscience. But just to uh, return to the chat rooms for a minute, Spooky Palooza has just um, popped up with, why don't more paranormal teams have electrical engineers on their team or wireless engineers? Um, it, the reason I'm, I'm struck by that question is because that's exactly what I'm qualified as. Um, I'm an instrument technician uh, originally, so I have electrical engineering qualifications. Mm-hmm. Um, but And it is a very interesting question, and it's a question that I raised at the Society for Psychical Research conference in September of last year. Because one of the great problems uh, that parapsychology has, has been faced with for, for a, the longest time is that the psychologists will out of necessity in in some of their experiments, want to measure physical parameters such as temperature or electromagnetism or, or for example, infrasound. Now, what you've got here is people who don't have the skills or qualifications in that particular area uh, simply deciding that they can do measurements. And often the measurements that they're doing uh, are either flawed in their methodology or flawed in their interpretation. Uh, and the argument I was making at the SPR conference was that the people who need to be doing the measurements on behalf of the psychologists are in fact the engineers, uh, and that way that they they, they would uh, get data that was m- measured to a reasonable and accurate standard, and and therefore reliable. Uh, there are many many cases and instances where uh, a psychology experiment has been undertaken in which physical variables are measured, measured so badly that, that a high school physics, uh, stu- uh, you know, high school student with a basic uh, understanding of physics could drive a coach and horses through the physics side of it. Uh, but the, the, the subsequent paper, the results, are peer-reviewed by psychologists. Um, past, you know, as... as Whenever a psychologist is confronted by a phys- by physics, their, their eyes do tend to glaze over somewhat. Uh, so they they assume that the other guy knows what he's doing. Uh, stick to the the psychology part of it, accept the 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 paper as is. It gets published, and all of the other psychologists accept it. Now, infrasound was one classic example where that took place. Tandy 
uh, had this idea, Vic Tandy, who, who, who was one of the first to link infrasound with paranormal experiences, um, made a mathematical assumption of a frequency, the famous frequency of 19 hertz, the frequency of fear. Um, now, that frequency assumption was wrong, but, no, but because the paper was submitted to psychologists, nobody ever thought to check that frequency or Tandy's calculation of that frequency. Uh, and so this, this 19 hertz slipped into accepted, uh, well, I would say accepted folklore by psychologists because it's been rehashed and repeated time and time again by psychologists with no thought of going back to check the original data. Uh, there are other classic examples too where the, the, the physics is being let down uh, or, or not being done correctly by psychologists. It's, it's kind of like, you know, you, would, you, would you have your appendix taken out by a dentist? Yeah, but that's not even close to being correct. It, well, it's exactly the same thing. They've no, both got medical... They've both got... Psychologists deal with psychology. They deal with the... the yeah, but they... But how many times have you heard a psychologist said, trust me, I'm a scientist? As a scientist, I believe this, 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 and this. And there, are, there is an absolute wealth of parapsychology papers that are published and that are peer-reviewed in which physics and physical variables are measured, and they're measured badly, they're measured wrong, well, and the resulting data... You, that's why you have peer review, you call that out. And, and no, 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 peer review, the peer review process is failing because the peer review process is being done by other psychologists, and they don't, they don't have the basic understanding of the physics uh, in order to be able to spot these problems. Hmm. I can give you example after example after example. We could we could we could run a whole month's worth of shows on examples. Well, I mean, yeah, I would like a example. I don't care example example. Give me a example of how a parapsychologist would screw up on a measurement. Okay, quite simply, in in uh, in the case of, are you aware of what a psychomantium is? Yeah, of course I am. I, okay. I experienced right. it. Two, a lot of research with it, actually. Okay, two parapsychologists built a psychomantium, um, Radin and uh, Dean Radin um, and uh, Redman uh, built, yeah. a para, uh, built a psychomantium, and they fully instrumented it to see if there were any uh, links between people's experiences within the psychomantium and changes within the environment, it the like local environment. Yeah. yeah, it had everything in it. It had thermal imaging, it had, uh, it had uh, EMF meters, it had thermometers, it had the whole range of stuff. The thermometer was placed on the floor of the psychomantium, or just above the floor of the psychomantium, behind the sitter. But, um, and they couldn't understand why the temperature ch- uh, changed in the particular way it did. What they found is that the temperature was rising um, in a way that they weren't expecting. So what they did, because they weren't expecting uh, this temperature change, which was the largest correlation to uh, the experiences of the percipients within the chamber, they, del- they decided to disregard the temperature data. Now, somebody who has a physics qualification would realise that the positioning of the thermometer on the floor of the psychomantian chamber uh, and the resulting temperature increase, um, sorry, temperature decrease, my apologies, the temperature went down, not up. Oh, oh, yeah, uh, the, it was me. The resulting, 
the resulting temperature decrease, there's the pizza bell, was entirely due to the fact that as warm air rises, it displaces the cooler air uh, back down to floor level, and so mm-hmm. the temperature at floor level would fall. Now, that was an entirely normal uh, and expected temperature measurement that the psychologists didn't see and didn't, uh, and didn't understand, and so they disregarded all of the data. I'm, not, I'm not sure I understand that myself. I mean, uh, if you go in and take a reading in, in a particular room, especially a small and closed chamber, yeah. then you should be pretty close to the mean of the chamber. Yeah. And especially cold air would not be at the top to start with. Your coldest air would be on no. the bottom. The, te- so the temperature will... The temperature... Is warm air. I'm, I'm not understanding that. Go ahead, explain that. Well, the temperature of any... Uh, in order to measure the temperature of a sealed box, um, you would measure it at, uh, at the central point to get the most accurate measurement. But they, when, when you place a thermometer at floor level, what will initially happen is warm air will rise and that will displace uh, the cooler air to floor level, which so initially the temperature will begin well, to why, fall for rising. Again. Once again, that makes no absolutely no sense uh, because cold air it would be cold, cold air is denser than hot air. Hot Anyways, air. yeah, that's cool. I understand that. Which which we realize that the <laughs> coldest air would be in the bottom of the chamber to start with, not in the top of the chamber where the warmest air would be. Um. Well, Anyways, they, we're out of time, so we'll have okay. to hold that for another thing. We got okay, well, we'll do that one another week. Then. Chronicle <laughs> National, right here on Tojinet, Pararex Ghost Channel and Beyond, with Steve Parsons and Ron Kolick, and uh, a special guest today has been Ursula Bazinski or something like that. Anyway, so Steve, I want to thank you so much. You uh, really, uh, yeah, carried the day. <laughs> that sounds like a load of hot air. So, anyways, uh, next week we have a special show, right? We do. We're going to put Life and Limb. It's our last show of 2013, and uh, it's 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 the ladies. It's the power behind the ghost hunters. The real uh, the real power of parascience and New England Ghost Project, I guess. Hey, Jan it's from New England. Saint Jan and Catherine, uh, my my uh, Mrs. P. So, anyways, it's time to wrap it up, and I want to thank you and thank everybody for listening, and uh, tune in next week with the Women Take Over. Good night, and God bless. Goodbye. Goodbye. From ghoulies to ghosties, long-leggedy beasties, and things that go bump in the night. Deliver us good luck.